Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Today, we're going to talk about clinical and surgical protocols, which changes are here to stay. And I am joined by two wonderful and well-known international retina specialists. We have Mariana Martinez-Castellanos from Mexico and Dr. Matteo Forlini from Italy. And we will get to that them in just a second. Uh, today's focus, once again, will be what types of things are actually going to be here permanently because of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, what changes to our OR, clinical routine, and whatnot. As just an update here, July 24th, 2020, worldwide, we have 15.5 million cases of COVID-19 with 633,000 deaths. In the United States, we've had 4 million cases with 144,000 deaths. In Mexico, we've had 370,000 diagnosed cases and 42,000 deaths. And in Italy, which was one of the earliest and hardest hit areas, we have 245,000 cases and 35,000 deaths. So let's start out with uh, Matteo. Matteo, Italy seems to be a location that has weathered uh, the COVID storm, a very vicious storm early on for you all, and seems to have come out of the other side. Is that true? And how are things on the ground in Italy? Well, yes, actually in Italy, uh, we had uh, one of the worst scenarios uh, in, the, in March. Um, actually, in this uh, last few months, like uh, June, July, uh, everything uh, went back to normal life in Italy, uh, pseudo-normal pseudo life. But I can say that uh, all activities reopened. So... Uh, uh, health uh, activity, I mean public hospital, private clinics, but um, in all uh, uh, different uh, um, aspects of the normal life, like restaurants, uh, uh, also now it's summer, so even, uh, even clubs on the beach, uh, even um, some uh, uh, concerts, uh, uh, quite normal life. Of course, uh, um, in every scenario, uh, we are using uh, new rules. So, for example, uh, when you go in public hospital, you can find the chairs, but uh, one chair is good, one chair is uh, crossed. So people cannot sit altogether. And that means that uh, uh, you don't have a, a crowd of, of patients like uh, in the past years. And uh, there are many, many small differences. For example, uh, when uh, you visit a patient, uh, you cannot, uh, uh, you have to leave uh, outside the, um, the parents or the wife or the husband. Um, and in some clinics, uh, the relatives uh, stay outside, like uh, in the street. They don't want the relatives go in the clinic. Uh, because uh, for every patient at the, um, at the door, uh, the nurse has to measure the temperature to check the fever um, and they uh, do for, uh, for uh, uh, surgical patients before the operating room, they check uh, the naso, nasopharyngeal swab 
specimen to check if uh, it's positive and, uh, and also the serologic uh, specific antibodies. This is for every patient that needs operating room, uh, even for uh, injections, uh, for macular degeneration. So you, you can understand that uh, all these uh, steps for every patient uh, um, pro provoke uh, a huge uh, work to do. And so for every patient, we need a lot of time of preparation. And uh, th that's why now, especially in public hospital, if we have one morning in operating room, we can do only maybe five cataract surgeries or maybe only two uh, vitrectomies. While uh, the year before, usually, you know, in operating room in one morning, you can do 15 or 20 uh, cataract surgeries or maybe four or five vitrectomies. So um, I, I said at the beginning, it's pseudo normal life because uh, we are doing everything, but very, very slowly. Because for every patient, uh, we have to do many, many uh, check papers, uh, signatures, uh, so, and that means that the public hospital uh, is working with very few numbers of uh, patients and the surgeries. On the other side, the private clinics are working more than, uh, than, than before because all these patients are calling other clinics or some, some, sometimes the patients calling me directly because uh, I'm working both in public hospital in the morning and private clinics in the afternoon, for example. So patients call me and, and tell me, oh, hey, public hospital, uh, I, have, I have to wait one year for cataract surgery. And so I want to be operated uh, soon. And so I, uh, they ask me or they ask other colleagues, to go to other private clinics to operate uh, for the FACO, for, for uh, not urgent macular pathology, like uh, macular Packer or macular hope. Uh, I, I want to, uh, j just to point uh, that uh, uh, for urgent pathologies, we are uh, managing good. For example, retinal detachments, uh, hemorrhages, or macular degeneration needing injections. Uh, we are uh, uh, keeping a good uh, rhythm because uh, it's urgent surgery. So uh, when we have a retinal detachment, we operate retinal detachment. The problem is for the not urgent patients. So the macular packer or the cataract surgery have to wait one month, two months, three months, four months because they are not urgent. That is the problem. Now, Matteo, you said that this is, this is actually increasing your private practice volume. Do you not have to do some of the same protocols in private practice, or have you just found a way to do it more efficiently? Uh, yes, we, we use the same protocols of preparation, e even in private practice. But the difference is that uh, uh, usually in Italy, public hospital uh, usually uh, receive a, a lot of patients, really uh, a lot of people. That's why the public hospital is uh, in crisis because it's difficult to manage all these people. You, uh, because uh, on the other side, private clinics usually are smaller. So with, uh, in, in the smaller clinic, you have a uh, few patients. 
so you can uh, manage every patient uh, easily. Public hospital, uh, of course, uh, with so many people to manage, so many problems altogether. That's why I, I, the, the weak point now is the public, public hospital. In Very interesting. Yeah. Maria, in, in Mexico, what is the status of COVID-19 just in general um, in the public and then also specific to your practice? So right now we are racing in the numbers. We're not even close to be flat. We're on the other side of the coin uh, than Italy. We are just racing. The thing is that the government is, has opened everything and we're having this, this huge amount of new cases every day. The hospitals are collapsing because of the, the amount of people that are getting into the hospital, particularly in ophthalmology. In public hospitals, they are not really now uh, seeing ophthalmology patients. So now private practices are going, are racing. But people is still afraid of going out to the, to the street. The ones that are afraid would because many are just in the street without a mask and well, this is complicated to, to, to put everything in order with that. But clinical, clinicals, ophthalmology clinics in private hospitals are basically nullified. They are not seeing as many patients as before. Many uh, ophthalmologists in some private hospitals, in some uh, public hospitals, has to be have to be into the COVID triage. In private, no, the private hospitals are, are completely different. Private hospitals are now raising in number of of people that we are screening, and now we have new problems. For example, in my case, that I am a pediatric retina and I see all these ROP patients, now we have to see these babies that they have COVID, the mothers that have COVID, we don't really know how was the transmission, if it's a vertical transmission. There are papers that says that there is no vertical transmission, but there are papers that says the contrary. And soon we will have to, to deal with all the, the pregnant pregnancies that were infected in the first trimester because we still don't know if there is a teratogenic thing with the COVID and, and what is going to happen next because this is a, it's very early. We, we feel like we have been in through this for years, but no, it's just a couple of months. So we will have to deal eventually with the pregnant women that became sick during the first trimester and, and, and what is happening to that baby. So well, you, know, you don't even yeah. think about that possibility that it could cause some sort of effect on the unborn child. That is absolutely tragic. It hadn't even entered my mind. Maria, what are you seeing in ROP kids who already have pulmonary issues that are infected with COVID? Do they struggle even more? Do they present differently? How is it they, to manage those babies? For example, now we're, we're putting together all these cases and they are really sick in the, in the pulmonary, the, 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 the pulmonary disease is really bad. And ophthalmologically, we see from eyelid edema to uh, keratoconjunctivitis, this, this chemosis that is very, very, very aggressive with the eyes. 
And we have been performing some angiograms because we see vascular problems in the eye. And we have uh, vasculopathies in, in the periphery. We have um, choroidal infarction and we have a non-perfusion nearby the optic nerve. And this is very new information. We still don't know what to do what, with these cases, but we see these in premature babies that are in the hospital. We don't, do have some Kawasaki-like syndrome in, in bigger babies, in older babies and children. But it's a, it's a, we're learning with uh, every day about new things in, in in, with, with the virus, not just the ones that we're learning about adults, because also in adults, we see a lot of pathology in, in the eyes. That's so tragic because you have these kids that are uh, the weakest and most vulnerable and they have these additional issues. So these findings you're seeing are very separate and distinct from what you see with ROP? Yes, they're completely different. And now oh, there will be co- well, they will have premature, so they will develop some degree of retinopathy of prematurity, and we add something else. So it's, it's, it's complicated. There are not many. We have like uh, in a very big hospital, like 15 babies, but the numbers are not that high. But anyway, they are babies with, with this disease. And, and you said that the, the public hospitals, what kind of testing is being done in Mexico now for, in general, uh, good access to, to testing and then also specific to your clinic and your patients that you see? Actually, in the public hospitals, testing is not really happening. In, and that's an issue. And actually, the, the World Health Organization just called Mexico to do more tests. For example, in my private practice, uh, we perform the, the rapid test for emergencies, uh, for urgent surgeries, and we ask the patient that is going to, uh, to undergo uh, a surgery to have the, the, the PCR, right? But in public uh, health, they are not testing everyone. And they, there is an extraordinary race number in, for example, atypical pneumonias. They don't, they don't categorize it like a COVID. They just say it is an atypical pneumonia. So we don't really know the numbers. Numbers more be much higher than what is in the news. Mateo, you've seen this, you've kind of moved through this and I, I feel like the US may be straddling the line. It's does more testing like Italy did. It's starting to lock down more, but it still has much of the same mentality that Maria is describing in Mexico of we want to keep our economy open. What was the key to success in Italy? I know you got hit really, really hard, but how, what would you advise people like us in the United States that it's rapidly out of control and, and in Mexico where it seems to be out of control as well? Well, actually, Italy really had the in the, in the beginning, in March, a huge lockdown, very strict. And uh, uh, of course, uh, the problem now is the economic crisis. So, I mean, the key of success, uh, meaning uh, the um, solution of the medical uh, emergency, provoked uh, 
problems in the economics. So, you know, it's the, the two sides of the same coin. Actually, Italy politics was very strict, was very um, exaggerated lockdown. So everything was closed for, uh, for two months almost. So, of course, many, many workers, many families had problems because you can imagine in Italy a lot of people uh, work in the touristic uh, field, in the restaurants, in, uh, in summer, in Italy summer is uh, the, the, the moment for the tourism. So a lot of people, I mean, as a doctor, we are, we are medical doctors, so we always have patients to visit, to, to, to care. But uh, people that works in the tourism, or uh, maybe they have hotels, restaurants, had uh, a lot of problems. But this, this lockdown so strict actually worked. Because uh, uh, now in Italy, uh, every week on the news, we are hearing less cases, less cases, less cases, less cases. So nowadays, uh, we have uh, really very few cases. Um, everybody here uh, ha have the fear, the fear that in autumn, in winter or autumn, maybe we, we don't know, but maybe coronavirus could uh, rise again because of the, of the, of the climate, climate, you know, you know for, because uh, autumn can be cold, cold, uh, and so, uh, everybody are not so happy because maybe coronavirus is just sleeping. We don't know. But uh, if, uh, uh, if coronavirus will not rise again in autumn, uh, situation in Italy now is good. It's, it's more uh, the fear than the reality because we are the very- econ The economy is working again in Italy? Uh, yeah, well, uh, every, everything started now. Okay, now everything is working, but we had this huge hole because for two months, three months, there was a stop. So many uh, industries, many companies, many factories, of course, uh, they had uh, zero, zero incomes. Some, some people were fired. Some people lost the job because, uh, you know, where, where uh, there are no money, it's a circle. Uh, okay, now politics, uh, um, our prime minister, prime minister Conte, okay, now in Italy, you know, in the European Union, we have a special equilibrium between, among all the European states. So Italy could receive money from Europe, um, but uh, uh, again, there is a, a side effect because uh, Europe gives uh, us money, but that means that our debt is more because uh, the money that we receive, one day we will have to return the money. So it's difficult to understand if, uh, how many problems we will have in the future. Now, it's not so bad. Actually, now it's good. But uh, uh, when, I mean, I'm not. I'm not an economic economist. I'm not. It's not my field. But when I hear the news, or I, I can hear some people, uh, expert in economics, they say that uh, this uh, uh, 
um, this period, uh, it will be a problem because we have a, we have a debt, and so I can conclude that uh, we managed good the medical emergency. So the, the first goal is achieved. Uh, now there are many consequences of that. I know that other countries, uh, maybe they did the lockdown not so rigid, so many activities are working, so economics are better, but maybe now they have, they have more problems for uh, people uh, uh, dying uh, or uh, sick. It's difficult to, to choose. Maria, I'll tell you, in the, in the United States, it is a very political issue, the difference between health versus the economy, and it's very polarizing. Is it polarizing in Mexico? What is the rationale behind keeping things open, not doing testing and other things like that given to you from the government? Uh, actually, I, I, they say that when the U.S. has a flu, Mexico has a pneumonia. And it's true. And it's true. Because uh, we're neighbors and we share a lot of things. And political is one of them. Our president don't even, doesn't even wear a mask. He, he, as well as, as, as your president, he's like against the mask wearing. And he says that if they test a lot, we will have a race of numbers. Of course, we will have a race of numbers, but, but then you can track the, 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 the contagious uh, areas, no? But uh, the political issue is, is big and it's really polarized. It's, there is no grace, it's black or, or white. There is no grace, it's or you are with me or you are not with me. So it, it's, it's complicated to deal with, with something like that. The, there is this secretary of the state that came out to say that she's drinking these drops that are like vitamin C and that's why she has never been contagious. So she's healthy because of that. And it's like this magical thing that is also in, in, in the people. And of, of course, the, 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 the poorly educated people that they are drinking chlorine or it's the same as in the US, but it's what I, I said at the beginning. If you have a flu, we have a pneumonia. We, we are just next to you. We're neighbors. We have the same issues, uh, sometimes a little bit different, but the same. The testing, That's the math and everything. I can say from the U.S. perspective, it's very frustrating to see the medical experts being doubted by the administration when you know what's right and people believe these false narratives. And finally, we're starting to get our leadership on board with at least wearing masks, which is irrefutable. We had people questioning here in the United States, oh, masks, it's a way to control us or it's a... Uh, they are dangerous. They can lead to, you know, elevated levels of carbon dioxide in the system and just all of these false narratives that were just not true. And it's very, very harmful. Let's talk a little bit about your clinic, Maria. How is your outpatient clinic functioning? What are you doing differently now than you were before COVID-19? In, in the private, we are now scheduling patients with more time. Before we had patients every 15 minutes, now we have every 30 minutes. So they don't, we don't have too many people in the, in the waiting room. Um, we have this device that, that puts some liquids when you get into the clinic. That's because we don't 
think that this is going to make a difference, but the health healthcare uh, uh, from the government from my state is requesting it. And um, for surgeries, we have to to have tests of the patient, the test of, of PCR. And if it's an emergency, I'll tell you it's just the, 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 the rapid one. And us as, as healthcare, we have the, the, the test, the finger test every week. And every three weeks, they ha we have the PCR also performed because it's um, socially uh, taking care of your patient. We could be asymptomatic. So we're, uh, ophthalmology is one of the, of the specialties that is considering high risk because we're less of two meters from the patient more than two minutes. Is that the two and two rule? Less than two meters, more than two minutes. So if we're doing a vitrectomy that takes us 40 minutes or more, well, you're in risk of being in, 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 in inhalating the, the virus. So we have to perform this test and it's for just taking care of everyone around in the clinic, in the private clinic, in the public clinic is different because we depend on what the, the government says about the, the testing. So I am not working now in the public except one day a week. And of course, we wear all this gear and, and everything. And in the public clinic that uh, I test premature babies, that is three hospitals in my area, what I did is I hired an optometrist that is really skilled taking pictures in, with, the, with a, a portable device. And he has all the, the, the gear to wear and is, we're doing telemedicine. He's, he's going into the clinic and I am reading the, the photographs from my, from my phone actually. And the babies that need treatment were going to the, to the hospital in a special area or they move the baby to my private clinic so the baby can have the treatment. Also, we have another optometrist that goes to the to take pictures of diabetics or anything from retina to the house of the patient. And uh, uh, because it's, it's easier if, if they have something, we make them come to the clinic, but if not, they just stay home, especially the very elderly. And we also have one that is doing the, the glasses and refraction easy things in the, in the house of the patient. We're doing a lot of medicine now. That's really amazing. So your telemedicine is more sending people to the patients, to their homes to do the imaging or to do the evaluation. And then do you consult virtually with them through Zoom or how do you communicate then with the patient? Usually by phone, usually okay. by phone. Some of them are very elderly and they are not really familiarized with the, with the, the technology like that, but by phone is easy. And usually we, we contact them by phone. It's easier with the babies. The parents are young, and and their generation, their generation just grew up with the phone. So with them, this is easier. But with elderly, there is not. We we just consult by phone. And Maria, are you doing injections in patients' homes? How are you handling your injection patients? The injections are in the clinic. They have to 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 come to the to the private clinic. And we schedule a day just for injections. Our injections are done as it's a faster procedure. We are not testing before the injection for, for COVID, 
but what, what I do, we have these acrylic boxes similar to the ones of the anesthesiologist, and we put the box over the head of the patient. So, so we do the injection and then they, they leave. But we use this, this, is, this, uh, the, this box, that translucent box, and we have three or four boxes and we clean it every patient. And you said that you're spreading out your appointment times from 15 minutes to every 30 minutes. Are you working longer hours? Are you working Saturdays? I know you have some allied health professionals helping you, but what does that look like? How's that impacting your schedule? Well, is is the, the number of patients is lower, of course, but we're compensating with the the one that is going home to the, to the home of the patient. So we, we still have a, a good number of, of patients that have been screened by in, in home and they do not require a, a treatment. It's just to, we see what they have and if the, 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 the diabetic retinopathy, that is what is my, more frequent in my area, is, is, is fine or they have to come for injection or surgery or, or laser. But and do you it, find it, you're doing more laser, Maria, for the diabetic patients for fear that this is going to go on and on and we may not be able to get, get those patients back in? The problem in, in Mexico, and maybe you have seen these videos that we present in the meetings that are really complicated diabetics, is because they, they don't have a really good preventive medicine um, in, for many diseases, and retinopathy is, is one of them. We see them when they are in advanced stages. We don't see them in very mild stages. So we're still working with, with that. We don't do more laser because they are already coming to us when the, the vision lowers or, or things like that. And for program surgeries like cataract surgery, we, uh, um, we, we test everyone. For, for urgencies, we, we have to do the fast test, but the, for everything else, is, is we program that with, with time. It, it's been difficult, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I think that we have to just adapt to it because it's what we're going to have to do for the next probably two years, maybe, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. But um, uh, we have to, to, to adapt to the new reality. And you mentioned this earlier, but I just want to come back around to it. There are some ophthalmologists and retina specialists who are being asked to work in the ICU. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. There are some. How and those are the public hospital employees, I would assume. And how are they handling that? What are you hearing back from them as they? Well, they are more in the in the administrative area and not not exactly screening the patients. But they are not doing anything related to ophthalmology. They are doing something else because they were lack of of doctors. Many quitted, and a lot of, of, of doctors and nurses and personnel from the hospital, even the, the guards in the doors, many people quit because they are not having all this equipment and all that. The, the government is not providing it in the, some public hospitals, so, so they prefer to quit to be jobless than, than to, to be uh, sick. So, so you have physicians in the hospital that are quitting because they, they just, wow, that is a, a for, for example, in, in, the, in the babies, that is where, where we measure a lot of things because we have this uh, program with the telemedicine and everything that we can 
see the evolution of things. Now I'm having a horrible raising number of oxygen-induced retinopathies, more than ROPs, like a clean ROP. And the thing is that many nurses quit it from the NICU. So they have now nurses that are not really trained for to be in the NICU, and they just put the oxygen high to the babies because they just want to make sure that they are having something alive the next day. And uh, so now we have this collateral damage of babies that are not taken care of as they should be because the nurse is not trained as they should be because the, the trained nurse quit or died or got sick or is in quarantine. So that's also something that is going to happen and I think it's going to happen everywhere. And maybe Matteo had, had something like that in, in Italy that we have sicker patients because of the lack of personnel to take care of their disease, not only in the eye, but in other areas of the body, the patients with cancer or the patients with uh, other chronic diseases that they could not have a good attention during, during the, the, the lockdown, the real lockdown, for example, in Italy. Exactly. I, I confer, we had the same problems. Um, I remember some patients uh, for example, uh, we will, um, I remember uh, patients uh, I was uh, preparing for a surgery for, for example, macula hole or macula pucker, and they were scheduled for uh, March. But then in March, uh, there was COVID emergency, operating rooms were closed, so the surgery was cancelled. Then I saw the same patients uh, in May. Uh, uh, just uh, preparing uh, the, everything for the surgery, but I found out that uh, the same patients after two months, he, for example, patient was diabetic or that patient had the problems cardiovascular and they had more problems of uh, general health for, uh, you know, blood pressure or uh, um, anticoagulating uh, drugs. So, I couldn't operate because the patient was not uh, healthy anymore. So they had, this patient had, had to go to cardiology, had to go to uh, many other uh, problems of general health. So like Mariana said, uh, this, uh, this period of uh, lockdown uh, was very hard, especially for these patients. More, more than ocular pathologies. Uh, another, uh, another observation. I ask, I actually, I don't know how did you manage this in the US or in Mexico, but in Italy, uh, especially in March, when it was a complete lockdown, uh, people uh, that um, had macular degeneration, uh, uh, and people usually doing uh, monthly injections, didn't do injections in March and April. So uh, when they came back to the clinic after uh, two months of nothing, some of them, uh, they had uh, a worsening of the macular degeneration. I mean, not, not every patient, but some patient really uh, paid, paid, uh, uh, because we found some big macular hemorrhage or some big exudation 
So th that was the problem. Now, of course, we, we are back to do injections, but some patients uh, had, had the, the problem of the lack of uh, injections for a couple of months. You know, we never really had a true full lockdown, Mateo. So for our practice, we never really stopped working. Uh, we were one of the practices, ophthalmology, general ophthalmology, cataract surgery, and elective procedures were required to shut down for three or four weeks in the United States. But for retina, because we were considered an emergency service, we continued to work, although we saw a reduced volume of patients most of what we saw that were problematic were, were patients who couldn't get into their eye doctor to be diagnosed in the first place. Our normal patients who kind of knew the risks would get in and would get treated. We saw very few that had existing patients that had problems. It was more the patients who had lost vision and didn't know where to go, you know, because they would have normally seen their eye doctor, but the eye doctor was closed. So they just waited. And frankly, for our economy, we probably shut down not hard enough and maybe a little bit too early because the rest of the United States reacted to what we saw in New York and New Jersey, shutting down everything. And that has made it very hard to get people to buy into shutting things down now. Maria, have you seen patients that don't come in in a timely fashion because of COVID or things, are patients getting in to see you pretty routinely? Yes, we have some, some issues with that. In public hospitals, they locked down some of this. Ophthalmology was probably one of the first ones to, to lock. And uh, they, they, we are now seeing a lot of complicated patients that they, they didn't have a, a treatment timely yeah, because of that. Mateo, uh, back to you. Are you, so you've kind of come through this, uh, still a threat. What are the things that you implemented during COVID-19 when it was bad uh, that you're continuing to do now and that you'll continue to do going forward? Things like telemedicine, are you doing fewer office visits and more injections? Are there things that you've learned through this that make you more efficient? Well, uh, telemedicine, uh, yes, because uh, actually I remember that uh, Last year also, I mean, that, that was a, a topic that uh, we were already discussed uh, many times during Congresses, for example. So I think telemedicine uh, uh, in COVID period, uh, telemedicine had the, the, the final uh, uh, push. Like uh, telemedicine was already a, a, a reality but now it's even more a reality. And so, and so I think for telemedicine is now um, probably more and more in the future. Not, not only because of COVID, but COVID uh, was a, a, a period, was a situation that uh, enhanced telemedicine uh, uh, utility. So I think that this is a good thing, good point. Um, another observation, for example, about uh, webinars, like now, for example, because uh, we, we, we already had the tools last year for doing this, this kind of uh, conversation. But uh, actually, last year, nobody was thinking about these webinars. Now we are forced to do it, 
And actually, this is a new way of doing conferences uh, or just a conversation like now. And so this is a new way that probably can continue, I, I, I believe, because it's very easy. Uh, we, are, we are talking uh, <laughs> among Italy, US, Mexico, like uh, friends, <laughs> like at the table. So this is nice. It, it is. It's amazing the, the barriers that are broken down when you take away travel. And I'd just like to point out that right now the ASRS meeting is going on and everyone internationally has access to that now, unlike previously where you'd have to wait to see the presentations online. And I believe your retina is going to be the same way. Um, so it definitely breaks down those barriers to international education and sharing ideas Back to telemedicine, Matteo, are you bringing patients into the clinic to have imaging and then calling them at home? Are you sending people out like Maria Mariana was doing where you send someone to their house and then they send pictures back to you? How do you execute telemedicine? Well, actually, in our experience, um, it's more from, um, okay, we have small offices in the territories and usually we have a big hospital in the city. So now, since the problem is uh, to receive all the patients in the big hospital. So now the solution is patients go, as I said before, patients go to many private clinics, small offices, many ophthalmologists all around. And uh, the ophthalmologist, for example, uh, can, uh, can do OCT, and maybe he's, he's not an expert in retina, he's not a retina specialist. So he, the, the, the ophthalmologist can send us to our service the, the picture or just the WhatsApp, I don't know. So this is a communication between uh, our retina service and many uh, ophthalmologists or sometimes even general, even a general doctors like just the, communicating with uh, WhatsApp. Uh, so this is uh, avoid, to avoid the migration of people. The, so the, the patients uh, don't come to us, but I can see the pathology, I can talk with the doctor, and I can say, okay, this patient needs injection, or this patient don't need injection. So just uh, oral uh, therapy, for example. That's a very interesting and distinct hybrid from what Mariana was doing with sending the people to the home. And in the U.S., we don't go into the homes, but we tend to bring people, in my experience, into our offices when we're not using them and do the imaging and then call them back. But I like your idea, Matteo, of discussing it directly with the referring doctor. Then the referring doctor can actually message the patient. So you don't have to, doesn't occupy more of your time from that standpoint. Are your referring doctors then the ophthalmologists doing the injections or are they sending the patients to you for the injections? Uh, they, they send patients for the injections. So the, the referring doctors uh, usually just uh, make diagnosis or uh, the referring doctors ask me about diagnosis and I can say, okay, this patient don't need injection. See uh, next month or this patient needs injections, uh, so the patient will come to us, but just for the injection. So uh, yeah, injection in the hospital, uh, in, in, in the big uh, center of retina, yes. Let's talk just a little bit about clinical training. Mariana, 
how has this impacted the clinical training uh, in Mexico of residents and fellows? Well, even one fellow quit because she was not learning about what she came to learn. But it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, it's, a, it's a year that some may consider it like a lost year because they are not learning what they were supposed to be learning. And some will consider it like a, some, an opportunity to, to learn a different way to do things. Example, telemedicine, because some of them are, are more, more into this uh, tele, tele-academics, telemedicine, tele-learning. And it, it's, it's, it's in a very interesting time because we, we, from one day to another, we had to change the way we were doing things. Now in the clinics that, uh, for example, I am only teaching how to do surgery to the fellows one day a week. So they try to put all the surgeries together in just one day so, so we can, I can teach them how to do the surgery in, in little babies. But uh, for, for, for them, it's a challenging time. For the people that is in training, it's a challenging time. Um, also for the ones that want to come for the next year. I don't know how you're going to manage it, but we are. We still don't know what to do with the the the, the ones that want to be trained for the next year. We don't know if we have to to keep the ones that are now for another period of time, so we can pay them their time when we were locked in in partially, or if we're going just bad bad luck and go home and we have a new trainee. So that is a, that's an impact in, in education also, because for example, for an infectologist, this is like their dream come true. <laughs> but for somebody in a different kind of, of medicine area, it's, it's a horrible nightmare that they are not learning what they were supposed to be learning because the, the, there's no, everything changed the way to, to, of how we're doing it. I don't know if Mateo has students in, in his private, but uh, I think that this is something worldwide so that we don't really know what to do with the ones that are coming next year. Mateo, yeah, give some feedback. How, how is training now in Italy? Since the main bulk of the virus is, has improved, is training resumed like normal or is it different than it was before? Well, no, um, actually the training uh, now is uh, back to normal uh, training because uh, in our public hospital, we have uh, some young uh, residents uh, or uh, fellows and uh, actually they just did uh, what we did. I mean, in March, April was uh, a lockdown, but uh, in May, we went back to work and residents too and fellows too. So the training uh, is still working as usual. So there is not uh, an issue. Uh, as I said before, the problem in the public hospital now is that uh, everybody uh, do less surgery. So less surgery for us and less surgery for residents. So the training now is slower than before. But I believe it's just a period because uh, uh, in Italy, every month is better, is better, is better. So maybe if we have this conversation uh, in, uh, I hope, maybe in November, uh, maybe it will be better. 
but nobody nobody can know uh, how, if the coronavirus will will come again more uh, dangerous again uh, i don't know it's just uh, a, a, a projection uh, actually i i think that uh, um, of course the pandemic uh, is a, is a tragedy but uh, i believe that uh, as uh, uh, john said before really now the world uh, is is uh, uh, speaking the same language because uh, in every part of the world we have the same problems now we are seeing that uh, us mexico italy and many other countries we are dealing with the same problems so maybe it's the first time that uh, all the world are facing uh, the, the same uh, issues so maybe this is uh, a historical period uh, very particular in this way you know mateo you give me great hope to see someone who's come through this in, in a country that's come through this and that things can start to look normal and that it can with doing the right things we can get this under control um, Maria, I'm, Mariana, I'm afraid we are in the same boat, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> we, uh, we are in trouble, I really truly believe at this point. And uh, I really hope that you all stay very safe. I look forward to seeing you both at meetings. Unfortunately, it won't be in 2020, but I really hope that we can have in-person meetings in 2021. But regardless, I appreciate you coming on. Um, let us know if you need anything, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much, and stay safe. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.